these transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Back in the recent past, there was a man who made films. He worked with such actors as John Carradine, J. Carol Nash, Rush Tamlin, Ken Taylor, Scott Brady, Broderick Crawford, Aldo Ray, Robert Livingston, Yvonne DiCarlo, the Ritz Brothers, and Lon Chaney Jr. He directed over 30 films, but this man was never in danger of winning an Academy Award. His films were more the drive-in circuit independently produced type, and after a long career, he was brutally murdered in his own home. There I have the story of filmmaker Al Adamson on the 194th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Good Sunday morning. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. I hope you're doing well. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I would like to know more about, then write it into a hopefully entertaining story. Today's episode is brought to you by David Pick. David gets the honorary title of producer because he so generously contributed to my Patreon page. David is a longtime listener who also watches many of my videos on YouTube. Thank you very much, David, for your generosity. It'll go a long way in helping to keep this podcast going. So today's show is about a filmmaker named Al Adamson. Now, if you do research for Al on the Internet, you will find, for the most part, two types of results. The first are reviews for a film called Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson by David Gregory. It's a film I'll talk about at the end of the show. Most other results are of his murder. In today's show, I will only briefly talk about the crime. It's more about Al Adamson's film career. If you'd like to know more about the gory details of this murder, you can find it all over the internet. So now, grab yourself a cup of java, and I'm going to tell you a tale of a filmmaker from the late 60s and early 70s. What horrifying role did a little girl and her doll play in his savage, midnight world? Psycho Agogo. His hate and twisted cravings suddenly focused on this one beautiful nightclub star. See the pulse-pounding Go-Go Girls. Haunted by the most terrifying psycho of them all. If you are strong enough to stand the shock, see Psycho Agogo and live an incredible nightmare of fiendish terror. Psycho Agogo! The date was August 2nd, 1995. In a house in Indio, California, police dug up a concrete floor where an indoor jacuzzi once stood. They were looking for a man who had been missing for five weeks. When they got deep enough, an awful smell rose. They knew they had found their man. He had been murdered. His name was Al Adamson, a B-movie director who directed 34 films over a 29-year career. Have you not heard of Al Adamson? Well, for those of you who watched the reboot of Mystery Science Theater 3000, you might have seen one of his films, Jonah Crow and Tom Servo, poked fun at, called Carnival Magic. 
This film was about a talking monkey who performed at a small carnival. It's not good. The MST spin-off show Cinematic Titanic did two of Al's films, The Oozing Skull, originally titled Brain of Blood from 1971, and East Meets Watts, which was originally titled The Dynamite Brothers from 1974. Adamson once said, My claim to fame as a director and also our company, Independent International Pictures, I think we put more on the screen for the amount of money spent than what anybody else did. And that's true. His budgets were far below the competitors like Roger Corman. His films take a lot of abuse these days. But no matter what you think of his movies, Adamson was able to keep making films for years. For a filmmaker like Adamson, it was the right time, the late 60s through the 70s, the golden age of B-movie exploitation drive-in flicks. And with the help of his longtime producer and good friend, Sam Sherman, they created films that were perfect for those large outdoor theaters. Al Adamson was a very good craftsman, Sam once said, and he made the pictures I wanted made, which distributors told us they wanted. Most of the fans have never seen our better films, he also said, so they think Al and myself were a bunch of incompetents who made all these patch jobs, who don't know what we were really doing. But the better films, the Naughty Stewardesses, Dynamite Brothers, Nurse Sherry, Blazing Stewardesses, they've rarely been seen by the people who are critiquing our work today. Now, Al was born on July 25, 1929, as Albert Victor Adamson Jr. in Hollywood, California. He was the son of silent film star and producer Albert Victor Adamson, better known as Denver Dixon. Denver Dixon had an interesting career. He was born in the U.S., but his parents moved to New Zealand when he was very young. In 1910, he produced and directed a silent film called Stockman Joe, which made it to the U.S. He was an excellent horse rider and cowboy, so when he returned to America, he thought he could become a cowboy actor. And while he found work, he never really made it big. So eventually, he began creating B-Westerns on his own, becoming a producer, director, and sometimes actor. Being an independent, low-budget B-filmmaker would be something he would pass on to his son. While he kept acting, the elder Adamson also directed 30 films. His 29th directing credit was 1935, and he wouldn't direct again until 1961. That was a film father and son made together called Halfway to Hell. Al wrote the story and acted in the film. Soon Al was making independent films of his own, like one called Echo of Terror. It was a film to help promote actress Tracy Robbins' singing career. He made a few films, but none of his movies sold, not till he met Samuel M. Sherman. Sam was born on April 23, 1940 in New York City. His love of film began when his uncle gave him an 8mm camera and he began making little films. He also began collecting old films, first on 8mm and then on 16. Soon he became a film historian, researching the history of these obscure films that he loved. As a bright high school student, he skipped grades and eventually wound up at City College Film Institute in New York. It was there he made his first short film, The Weird Stranger, in which he shot in a day. The film got him an A in the class. Eventually, he was hired by James Warren, who produced the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland. He would write and supply stills. Through the magazine, he began to interview many directors, actors, and producers. 
Sam and Jim Warren had a falling out over a film they were working on together called Vault of Thrills or Screen Thrills the Movie. It was a compilation film of silent horror westerns and thrillers. When the film was taken away from Sam, Sam got angry and decided to take a trip to Los Angeles. He spent his time meeting many of the actors and filmmakers he had only talked to on the phone or by mail. One person he wanted to interview for the magazine Scream Thrills Illustrated was Denver Dixon, and it was through Dixon that Sam met Al. Al Adamson at the time was running a nightclub that he owned called the Mutiny in the San Fernando Valley. Now, through Denver, Sam had got the rights to the 1934 film version of The Scarlet Letter and flew back to New York to try to get distribution for a re-release. So, after Al made Echo of Terror, he and his father flew to New York to see if Sam could help get it released. Sam and Al worked hard but with no success, so Sam came up with an idea of filming new go-go musical numbers and adding more violence to give it an exploitation appeal. It was renamed Psycho Agogo, an action thriller about a psychotic jewel thief who stalks a young woman and her child into the wilderness to get back some stolen jewels he had hidden in the child's doll. They were able to find a distributor called Hemisphere Pictures in 1965. It was Al's father who convinced the two that if they wanted to be successful, they needed to set up their own production company. So in September of 1968, along with former theater owner Dan Kinnis, they created the Independent International Pictures Corporation. Sam is president, Dan is chairman of the board, and Al is vice president. For the first film, they made a deal with ABC to go to Spain and make a film with George Montgomery. Al was in Spain waiting to get started when the financing fell through. After failing to find other money, he returned back to New York, broke and desperate. In a $10 a night hotel, all the money he had, he began working on a story. In one night, he finished a 20-page treatment about a biker gang. Both Dan and Sam liked it, so they began working on Satan's Sadists. Interestingly, the screenplay was written by Graydon Clark. Fans of Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks might remember Clark from a few of his films, Star Games, Final Justice, Angel's Revenge, and Dark Future. Anyway, Satan's Sadist was a 1969 American outlaw biker film starring Russ Tablin. For Russ, it was sort of a comeback. Tablin had been a child star, billed as Rusty at the age of 10, and then moved into more adult roles like West Side Story and How the West Was Won. He even earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his part in Peyton Place. However, by this point, his career was sort of on the downturn. He was doing films like the 1966 Japanese kaiju film War of the Gigantuans, and he was thinking about retiring from the movie business. Russ thought the script was terrible, but he agreed to make the film as long as he could create his own dialogue, something in which Adamson agreed. Al gave him the freedom to improvise. Russ was the start of a collection of people that would become a regular part of Anderson's company. Like other independent filmmakers, Adamson would build up a stock company of actors and crew, who usually did both, that he would constantly count on. One was Robert Dix, the son of cowboy film star Richard Dix. Another one was a pretty blonde girl he met in a diner. The story goes that Adamson was in a coffee shop when he noticed a pretty waitress. She spilled coffee on him. Adamson later said he thought it was on purpose to get his attention. 
Anyway, Al was taken by her, and soon she was in his films. It was a relationship that would last more than 20 years, both professionally and personally. Her name was Regina Carroll, and Al married her in 1972. They stayed together until her death in 1992. Over those years, both Gina and her cleavage made it into many of Adamson's films. Satan Sadus was a huge success, and they needed an immediate follow-up. They began a gimmick they would go to over and over again, and that was to take a previous film or foreign film, re-edit it, add a few scenes, and give it a new name. One of the first was a German film that they renamed The Bedroom in 1969. This technique was done to Psycho a Gogo, not once, but twice. It had already been released once. Then in 1969, new scenes were shot with John Carradine as a mad scientist, and it became The Fiend with the Electronic Brain. Then in 1971, with even more footage featuring Kent Taylor, Tommy Kirk, and Regina Carroll, and a little re-editing, it became Blood of Ghastly Horror. Some of Al's earlier unreleased films were reworked as well. In 1967, a film called The Faker, starring John Gabriel, Broderick Crawford, and Scott Brady, became Hell's Bloody Devils. Their original films always followed what was ever hot at the time. Both Satan Sadus and Hell's Bloody Devils were following the motorcycle gang films that started with Roger Corman's Wild Angels, The Dynamite Brothers and Mean Mother, Blaxploitation. The Naughty Stewardesses and Blazing Stewardess were sex comedies, Nursery, Brain of Blood, and Dracula vs. Frankenstein, horror films. Speaking of Dracula vs. Frankenstein, it brings up another one of Sam and Al's ideas, and that was to hire aging stars in the twilight of their career. Actors like John Carradine, J. Carol Nash, Kent Taylor, Scott Brady, Broderick Crawford, Eldo Ray, Robert Livingston, Yvonne DiCarlo, the surviving Ritz brothers, and Lon Chaney Jr. were given a last shot in pictures. Lon Chaney Jr. had already been in the female bunch, and in that film, his voice was almost gone, taken away by cancer. By the time of Dracula vs. Frankenstein, he was unable to talk at all. Years of smoking had gotten to him and he knew he was on death's door. In the original script, which was called The Bloodseekers, Cheney was supposed to have dialogue and even do a bit of narration. Now his character became mute. J. Carol Nash, also in the film, wasn't in much better shape. He was in a wheelchair and was to the point where he was unable to remember dialogue. He had to rely on cue cards. And Nash only had one real eye, which is evident in some of his close-ups. Neither Dracula nor Frankenstein were in the original cut of the film. But the first cut of the film was so bad, they debated whether it should be shelved and never released. It was Sam's idea to bring in the two classic monsters to help them save the picture. So reshoots were done. J. Carol Nash had to be brought back for additional scenes, and that's why he looks a bit older in some parts of the film. For both Nash and Cheney, it would be their last time on celluloid. Now, one thing about Adamson's films, they always looked good. And that's because he was able to find two young, struggling cinematographers looking to get their big break in movies. They were two friends who escaped from Hungary during the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. They were Vilmos Zygmunt and Laszlo Koufax, who would both become Hollywood's most sought-after cinematographers used by the most prominent filmmakers of the 70s and 80s. 
Another one of their camera operators was Gary Graver, who would also work with Orson Welles. Now, for those who watched Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Spawn Ranch is featured, an old Western movie location. It is true that it was owned by George Spann, an 80-year-old blind man, and it was being used by the notorious Manson family. Adamson shot a few of his westerns on Spawn Ranch during the time of the Manson family. Gary Kent was a stuntman who worked for Adamson on the film Lash of Lust. On the YouTube show Stuntman Stories, he tells the story of Bud Carlos's dune buggy. Bud was a large and imposing man who was a regular in Adamson's film company. The girls who were living on the ranch would often come down to the movie sets, offer to do nude scenes, and beg for food. One day, the dune buggy broke down, so Gary Kent asked one of the girls if they knew of a mechanic who could fix it. They said they had a great mechanic that could do the job. Soon a short man without shoes or shirt, just ragged old jeans and long, dark, greasy hair walked over. He introduced himself as Charlie Manson. The first thing Gary thought was, this man needs a bath, some food, and a good night's rest. He looks terrible. Charlie said he could fix it for $70, but he needed the money up front. Bud gave him the money. When the dune buggy was still not fixed the following day, Gary told Manson, Bud Carlos is a really tough guy. If this dune buggy isn't fixed right away, he's going to give you a new anus. Within minutes, Charlie was under the vehicle and got it fixed. It was a short time later that they learned Charlie Manson had been arrested for the Tate-LaBianca murders. Adamson said in an interview, I shot two or three pictures at the Manson ranch out there in Chatsworth. Manson and some of his girls, the ones who were convicted, were actually on my set while I was shooting. They were offering to do nude scenes for me. Manson started ogling my actresses, so I had the production manager throw them off the set. That's how close I came to them. Although it's been said that Al had an aversion to pornography, many of his films went into the softcore area, like the naughty stewardesses. In fact, in Girls for Rent in 1974, he hired Georgina Spelvin, a porn actress who had starred in The Devil and Mrs. Jones. Everybody's heard about Linda Lovelace, Marilyn Chambers, and Georgina Spelvin, the screen's erotic queens. And now you can see Georgina Spelvin, star of The Devil and Miss Jones, at a theater near you in Girls for Rent. In one of Al's pictures, Al let Harlan Sanders, better known as Colonel Sanders, appear in exchange for some free chicken. The problem with Sanders was that he required more than one take, which is a no-no in Al's films. He insisted on one take. It didn't matter if you blew your lines or whatever. One take, and then you move on. In all, Independent International Pictures Corporation made about 30 pictures with Al Adamson directing, all for a budget of between $200,000 and $500,000, and all did very well. But then things started to change. The days of the drive-in were coming to an end, especially for B-movies. And by that time, Adamson had a family to take care of and decided to go into real estate to make a living, which he did very successfully. He made two more films away from Independent International as a director for hire. They were something he had never done before, family films. The first one, Carnival Magic, and the second was called Lost. Al said of these, 
On these last two films, I was hired strictly as a director, and I made the best film I could out of what I had to work with. When I finally saw Carnival Magic, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought it worked. I wish I had the rights right now. Later in life, he began working on a couple of documentaries about UFOs. In 1992, his wife of 20 years, Regina Carroll, who was a heavy smoker, passed away due to cancer. Al said the last years were pretty bad for her. Sam Sherman said that Al started on a long, downward emotional spiral, though he eventually met another woman named Stevie Ashlock. Stuntman Gary Kent said he got a call from a friend who said Emerson would like to hear from him, so he gave him a call. They talked late into the night about the old days and dreams of what may happen in the future. Al seemed to be in good spirits and was amazed that there were actually Al Adamson fans out there. And then Al mentioned that he was having a hard time lately with a man who had been hired to work on his home. Al told Gary, The asshole has been stealing from me. And he's also been running up my credit cards on his own personal stuff. I'm going to confront the son of a bitch tonight, and if he doesn't pay me back, I'm taking the bastard to jail. That was the last time he talked to Al. Sam said, Al disappeared in June of 1995, and I could not find him. Al's brother Ken and I started a police investigation in June 1995. Well, it seemed that Al did confront the contractor, a man named Fred Fulford, and it didn't end well. Al had been missing for five weeks when his brother and his housekeeper became suspicious that his beloved hot tub had been removed. Finally, police dug up the floor, and deep in the concrete, Al was found. The guy had made some pretty gruesome movies with bodies turning up all over the place, Police Lieutenant Bruce Bauer said, so finding the body where we did is a pretty ironic twist. Fred Fulford was arrested at the Coral Reef Hotel in St. Petersburg, Florida. Fulford was charged with and convicted of murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Sam said of Al that he was soft-spoken, polite, and easy to get to know. He was tall and thin and a great athlete. He was a big fan of the L.A. Lakers and also played basketball for many years as a sport. Other than sports, he loved the many dogs he owned and was devoted to his wife, Regina Carroll, and spent a lot of time buying and selling real estate and building homes. No budget was too small, no job too tough. He would take on any project I wanted him to do. He was a great friend and a great partner, and I was lucky to have known him. He was a very skilled director and always wanted to do bigger and better films, but budgets were never there. In my opinion, he was capable of making big-budget, high-quality films, but never had the chance. I was the one who put him into cult horror drive-in movies. I was the one who wanted him to make them zany and loony. Unfortunately, Al is credited with liking this type of thing. Untrue. And his true talents are not recognized, but at least I know the truth. In the documentary, Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson, Russ Tamlin said that when he met Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino said how much he loved Satan's sadists and even quoted many of the lines of Russ's dialogue. 
From one end of America to another, from Tiny Hamlet to the big cities, the critics are raving about blazing stewardesses. Blazing stewardesses out blazes blazing saddles. It's a mad, 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 mad world of sheer lunacy and complete insanity. Dunhall! Blazing stewardesses out panthers pink panther. Blazing stewardesses out sex is everything you wanted to know about sex. Dunhall! And still the applause mounts. Blazing stewardesses is all that and more, more, more. If you see one picture this year, make it Blazing Stewardesses. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Please don't holla. From Independent International. A little bit before I go. Like I said at the beginning, there's a brilliant documentary about Al's life called Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson by David Gregory. I came across this film early in my research, and it's available on Amazon Prime for about five bucks. I decided early to watch it, but only after I completed my story, or at least the first draft of my story. That's not to say that once I watched it, I didn't use a few bits here and there to to spice up my story, but, but most of my data was from other sources. The film, which I enjoyed, has a bunch of excellent interviews with those who worked in Newell. And it also spent about 20 minutes to a half hour on his death, something that I just skimmed over here. So if you want to know more, I'd rent this movie on Amazon. I'm not going to spoil the film for you, but let's just say there might be some controversy over his death. The UFO community or the men in black (sighs) might have had something to do with it. There's always a conspiracy now, isn't there? Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to it at the Coffee with Jeff website. Remember, I could always use your help with my financial issues. You can help by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. Other ways you can help is to leave a review on whatever social platform you listen to the show on, or you can just tell a friend or repost the episode on social media. I'm always grateful. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for whatever reason. Just say hi. I'd appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page I'd love you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome, and believe me, I always need story ideas. The producer of today's episode was the generous David Pick. Thanks again, David. I want to thank my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something thrilling, I hope. Bye. Yeah.
Thank you. 